You're listening to episode 42 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring Phantom Girl and the Grim Ghost, who some might call the Gay Ghost. I mean, not like in a derogatory way. He used to be gay. I mean, no, he wasn't. He was originally named Gay Ghost, but when they retold his Secret Origin, they changed his name to Grim Ghost because Gay Ghost sounded bad. No offense, I mean, being gay isn't bad, just the word. No, I don't mean that either, I just... Damn it, I was just starting to miss Roy Thomas, and then I have to deal with this crap. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and my first guest is a man who needs no introduction and therefore isn't going to get one. (laughs) Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC universe. The series ran for 50 issues between (laughs) January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. Deja vu. Yeah, this time my guest and I are jumping in a time bubble bound for the 30th century to learn the origin of one of the Legion of Superheroes, Phantom Girl. You should have said there's no origin dedicated to Prody. <laughs> would have been your perfect little stinger you, like you usually do. Yeah. So, Shag, your love of the Legion is well documented, as is your appreciation for the aesthetic qualities of women in comic books. So, <laughs> please answer the question we are all wondering, is Phantom Girl the hottest Legionnaire? Yes. Absolutely. In fact, I wrote a post for a little site called the Legion of Superbloggers stating that exact fact. If you're not familiar with the Legion of Superbloggers, shame, shame, shame on you, and you don't pay attention very closely to this show because it's been discussed before. It's a wonderful site dedicated to the Legion, and there I uh, answered both of those questions. I talked about my love of the Legion, and I talked about Phantom Girl. My love for the Legion is, is sort of interesting. I didn't find the Legion until late in life, I guess you could say. Well, not late in my life, but late in the Legion's life. I didn't find them until 1989. I was 17, and I was beginning to dip my toes outside of the, like, the traditional spandex and capes and stuff. And I came across this pamphlet. You know, like when you go in the comic shop, they give it with the free giveaways, the promotional pieces? There was one for the Legion. It was this black and white printed thing on the outside and color inside. And it basically had like a picture of the Legion, a happy, typical Silver Age Legion on the front. It says there were three of them, three teenagers, and they had a dream. When you open it up, it's got the Legion headquarters, but it is typical late 80s Keith Giffen. Everything is a mess. Dark, dystopian. The Legion headquarters is a wreck. It, there's a sign advertising that is being converted into apartment buildings. It's a whole dystopian future. And it basically talks about how the Legion is no more, and now these people have to come back together and find out what makes them great. And I was like, wow, at age 17, a dystopian future is like totally up my alley. So I read the com. I read Legion of Superheroes at that point. It's, it's an era referred to as five years later, and I was hooked, and I didn't know what the hell I was reading. If you've never read Five Years Later Legion, it's confusing as crap. Issue number one, they never say Cosmic Boy. They don't say Chameleon Boy. They don't say any of that. They say, like, Rock and Reap. I'm like, 
who the hell are these guys? So what I did know, though, is I had a complete stack of who's who. So I sat down and went through my who's who and wrote down on this sheet of paper every single Legionnaire, their real name, and the planet they were from, and their powers. I kid you not. It was like a little Rosetta Stone for the entire time I read the five years later at Legion. Because every issue, they introduced some new character. Like, oh, look, here's Jonah. Who the hell is Jonah? So I'd have to figure that out. Or they just make a reference to the planet Rimbor and things like that. And it became more than just a, a reading experience. It became a research project. And it just, I became so much more invested in it. And I loved it. Oh, it was so good. Up until, well, it's, it's all been documented over on the Legion of Super Bloggers. Ange, our friend Dr. Ange, friend of this show, did an amazing job reviewing every single issue of the Five-Year Legion. And uh, if you follow his reviews, you can see the point where it's sort of the wheel turns or the, the worm turns, if you will. And um, it's a great run, though. And that's what made me fall in love with the Legion. So... I'm not all that terribly familiar with the classic happy, shiny Legion that everyone else knows. You know, the old Paul Levitt's Keith Giffen era. I haven't read much of it. Like you, the first real pre-five-year-later Legion I read was the Dark... Uh, the Great Darkness Saga. Oh my gosh, I blanked out on it. See, you, you, of all people, had to come in and rescue me from that. Yes, and I'm halfway through the Curse Trade paperback now. So I've, well, I've read like the first three issues of the Curse Trade paperback. Me so. too, and I've just kind of stalled. Now I'm reading the stupid Clone Saga from Spider-Man. I don't know. I got, I got confused. <laughs> but I love the Legion. I have a huge passion for it. My passion kind of is from that era about 1989 to about, uh, 19, mm, about 1995. So there's like six years I was a really diehard Legion fan. But my love has always been there. I've picked up lots of issues. I'll, I'll pop in and check in on my friends in the 31st century every so often, see how they're doing. Every time there's a reboot, and there's been a bunch, uh, I'll pop in and see what that looks like. So mm, I love them. Now, Phantom Girl. Should we talk about her? Or should we talk about something? You want to talk about the Legion in general? What do you want to do? No, I want to hear the Phantom Girl. I asked the question, is she the hottest? You said she is, so tell oh, me why. Tell our she listeners. is smoking hot, folks. Now, if you're not familiar with this, she, her outfit's all in white with uh, usually black highlights, and she's got black hair, and she's beautiful. She's absolutely gorgeous. And when you read the comics, she comes across as incredibly charming and bright and cheery, kind of almost the word uh, I've seen used to describe her was cheerleader-ish. And she's popular, and she's well-liked. She's just a very likable character. And I got to tell you, I'll be completely honest, I have a crush on her. I have a comic book crush on Phantom Girl. It's terrible. It doesn't happen very often for me with comics, but like, I see her in a comic, I'm like, oh, it's Phantom Girl. It's Tina. I got to read about Tina. Now, when I first when I started reading the Five Year Later Legion, she wasn't even in it. She was dead. They thought she was dead at least. And there was a lot of these stories about Ultra Boy and his lost love. And they really, I mean, they just knew how to get you right in the feels. So I felt bad about her without even knowing her because she was gone. And, and there was this hole in his heart, you know, if you will. And there was the Who's Who entry. I knew her a little bit from there. And then I was reading the Legion, you know, acronym L E G I O N that series. And there's a character called Faze in there, which we'll talk about later. And then uh, about two years into my Legion reading experience, they introduced these characters called the Batch SW6 Legionnaires. Were they clones? Were they duplicates? That was a big question. The gist of it, though, was we got our cake and we got to eat it, too. We got the five-year-later dystopian Legion, and we got the sort of bright, shiny, happy teenager Legion. Both of them were coexisting. And so I got to see Tina Wazo as Phantom Girl, or at that point going by the name Apparition, as a happy Legionnaire. And that's where my love for her really blossomed. So, And now, if you, if you continue to read the more adult Legion stories, she eventually goes on to become leader of the Legion. And she's, again, just dead sexy, especially as a grown-up, and a great, great character. I prefer to think of her as a grown-up because otherwise as a teenager and that's just kind of dirty. 
I mean, Dave Cockrum was sexualizing these characters pretty early on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's another thing, too. I mean, if you look at the era in which I grew up reading her, she was appearing when drawing, being drawn by Chris Sprouse, Adam Hughes, Jeff Moy, Barry Kitson. These guys don't know how to draw unattractive women. It's, it's not in their wheelhouse. And then you look historically. You just mentioned Dave Cockrum and that costume redesign he did, also drawn by Mike Grell, Steve Lytle. I didn't have a chance. I was going to fall in love with her. So when you first discovered her, what was her costume? Because as we'll see in this one, like her traditional costume, it's an all-white, basically it's a traditional superhero costume, like with the, the skin-tight look, the cape, but it's all-white with a black P. But, you know, looking at the Great Darkness Saga and the Curse during that Levitt's Giffen run, which I'm not familiar with now, it's the Dave Cockrum look where it, she's got like a bell bottoms. It's, a, it's like a disco suit. It's a white disco suit. And it, it, the, like the cleavage going, it's, a, it's sexy as hell. Like I get, yeah, the look, I get the hotness from that look. There's the cleavage and there's a lot of uh, sections cutouts, a lot of exposed mm-hmm. skin cutouts all the way through the chest. And then later on, they made that same outfit short sleeve, which makes it even hotter, and yeah. short hair when she was a grown-up. Honestly, neither one of those costumes was really when I fell for her. It was during the SW6 Legionnaires when she became Apparition. She changed, had a different name. It was an all white outfit. It was kind of similar to the one in the cover here, except it was all white. The cape was longer, and the, the center, right from like her neck down to her navel, was there was a black center section. And she had a large belt on with a legion and a red clasp. It, just, uh, it was kind of like this, but a little more 90s, if you will. <laughs> so that, w- that was the suit that I saw. In fact, if you look at the Cosmic Team's trading cards, there's a great image of her drawn by uh, Adam Hughes, that will make just about anybody swoon. Yes, she's a teenager, but I'm sorry. Adam Hughes draws her like she's 25 years old. So you can you know, take that however you want to. It's a dangerous combination. It is. It is. Now, to give you an idea, I'm not the only one who's in love with her. Like, here's what Jim Shooter, you know, the guy who headed up Marvel, he wrote Legion for a long time. Heard of uh, In 1976, he said, no wonder Ultra Boy worships her. She's bright, pretty, thoughtful, sensitive, and charming. And then he went on to talk about how she also knew all about Jonah and knew how to manipulate him, which is pretty funny. (laughs) And then Tom and Mary Beerbaum, we'll talk about them in a bit, in the year 2000 said that she was strongly driven to rebel against her stuffy, disapproving, elitist mother, but also has lots of tendencies to follow in her mother's footsteps. Sort of a snooty cheerleader who sneaks a smoke in the girls' room. (laughs) You can't help but just fall for her. More, more about the hotness, because it's not just me also. If you listen to the Fire and Water Podcast Network, you probably have heard of the show Oh, Hot Moo or Not. It is, I think it's fair to say, our favorite show. It's hysterical. Siskoid sits around with uh, a group of ladies, and they go through the Marvel handbook, of the, or handbook, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, and they go through each entry and decide if the characters are hot or not. Well, they do the same feature over on the Legion of Super Bloggers. And when they covered Ultra Boy, they talked about Phantom Girl. And the ladies totally said she was sexy. They, they talked about her fashion. They talked about her attitude, her powers. And again, talked about how sexy she was. And then, even more so, in the Comic Buyer's Guide, you ever heard of that? Um, in 2011, they had this poll for the 100 sexiest women in comics. She came in number 96. So it's not just me, people. Well, I mean, you had me even before that. I think once you invoke Siskoid and the girls from Ohio or not, they are like the supreme authority on... Pretty much every opinion I have in comics now. (laughs) (laughs) Totally understandable. Let's get to Phantom Girl's publication history. Uh, Really quickly, 
Although some sources credit Phantom Girl's debut to Adventure Comics 247, the same issue that introduced the Legion of Superheroes, the character was neither named nor explicitly shown in that issue. And I call bullcrap on that. Yeah. Her real first appearance was in the story Supergirl's Three Supergirl Friends from Action Comics issue 276, published in 1961. That story established Phantom Girl as the fifth member of the Legion, after Triplicate Girl and the original three. I'm wrong? Yeah, but that's okay. Keep going. This is fun. For me. All right. From there, Phantom Girl appeared in Adventure Comics 290 and Action Comics 290 as well. Starting with Adventure Comics 301 in 1962, Phantom Girl appeared in most of the Legion of Superheroes pre-Crisis stories, so I'm not going to list all of them in this segment. The quality and substance of those appearances is much more important, I think. In the letters column of this issue, Mark Wade says, While Phantom Girl enjoys the distinction of being the Legionnaire with the longest unbroken term of membership, there have been no stories spotlighting her during her entire 28-year history. That means she never had a proper origin story before this issue, and whether or not that's a good thing is something Shag and I will talk about a little bit after the break. (laughs) I don't really know anything about her history after the crisis, so can you fill us in on what happened there? Well, sure. Let me back up just a little bit. You mentioned her first appearance, Action Comics 276. Yes, that is her first appearance, but that is not where they established she was the fifth Legion member. Uh, That actually happened in Superboy – because in Action Comics 276, she's already a member of the Legion. Mm-hmm. So when she meets Supergirl, she's been a member for a while. They don't talk about how she joined the team. She's just there. Okay. That's, that's why some people speculate that she was part of the original Adventure Comics appearance of the Legion because you see some heads right. that are in silhouette and they're like, yeah. oh, that's probably Phantom Girl. Yeah, I looked at that issue again and was trying to see if I could identify her. I was like, no, this is BS. You can't tell exactly. who any of these people is- are. This is someone way retconning too hard. Uh, it wasn't until Superboy number 147, which came out seven years after her first appearance, where they reveal how Phantom Girl joined the Legion, and that is where they reveal she's the fifth member with Triplicate Girl. They both got inducted on the same day. So, um, post-crisis. Oof. Okay. So, here's the deal. As uh, Mark Wade said, she didn't have a whole lot of stories spotlighting her. And I'm sure someone who else who is a real true Legion expert, because I'm, I'm not an expert. I just told you guys I didn't really get involved until 1989. So you know, some of our friends, the Legion super bloggers, might be able to name off a bunch of specific stories where she is the feature character or at least really, really uh, headlined. I will tell you that after Crisis, though, she, um, she died. Well, it gets very confusing, so you're going to have to follow with me because, you know, because comics. There was a storyline called The Magic Wars. In it, it was believed the Phantom Girl died. But that's not really what happened to her. She got shifted back in time. She got sent back to the year 1989. And she lost her memory. And she appeared in uh, – you're familiar again with the, the acronym Legion yep. series? Yep. She appeared there in issue number nine. And she had no memory, so she ended up taking up on the name Phase. But it looks just like her. You know, She's got a white outfit with black highlights. She's got the black hair. She can walk through walls. It's clearly Phantom Girl. But she doesn't know who she is, so she goes by the name Phase. And she stays a member of that Legion team for quite a while. And there's a whole lot, there's a whole lot more to it. And I know the Legion fans are screaming at their zone of phones right now going, but Shag, you're not talking about the Durlin that switched places with her. But wait, Shag, FaZe is really her cousin. No, wait, it's part of her triplicate powers. I know all that, guys. It's not worth talking about right now, okay? Just settle down, polish your Legion flight ring, take a breath. So FaZe was a character that was around the Legion for quite a while. That's also her. Then, again, I mentioned the five years later clone batch, but they're not really clones. They're actually another version of the Legion. Again, very confusing because it's Legion, and they have to constantly wreck on them. So there was a version of Phantom Girl there who took on the name Apparition. 
And that lasted about 1991 to 1995. So about four years, you had a young Phantom Girl going by Apparition. Then Zero Hour happened. And you got your very first reboot of the Legion continuity. That's where they had to restart everything. And at that point, they just said from the very beginning, she was called Apparition. She was never called Phantom Girl. She was called Apparition. And that version of Tinya Wazoo lasted for about 10 years, 1995 to 2005. Then 2005 comes along. We get another version of the Legion, which is called the three boot version. And they go back to the Phantom Girl name. And she's in all these cases, she's still relatively the same character. They change bits and pieces. They change her mother's job here and there. But she's still essentially the same person. She's uh, mostly well-liked. She's got a little bit of a sparky attitude. She does like to stir up some trouble. For the most part, everyone likes her, though. And she almost always ends up with Ultra Boy. Then uh, somewhere, and I don't have the date on this, whenever the, the Lightning Saga happened, and uh, if, was it Final Crisis? No, Lightning Saga was during the Justice League and Justice Society books that came out after Infinite Crisis. Okay. Somewhere so around bet- there. Between Infinite Crisis and Final Crisis. Yeah, somewhere in there, they reset the Legion continuity back to the original one. So instead of it being the rebooted continuity or the three-booted continuity, it was all the way back to the original continuity. And you got Phantom Girl back as an adult with her relationship with Ultra Boy. They had a baby. There was some weird stuff going on where they got separated, and she was a little bit too friendly with Timberwolf for, for Ultra Boy's liking. And uh, in the New 52 era, she actually became leader of the Legion for the first time, which is kind of surprising. It, it, it also goes to show that she was always around but didn't get to be the headliner. She, hadn't, she didn't become the leader of the Legion until all the way into the New 52, which is crazy. That's 50 years into Legion history, you know? So that's, those are the highlights. Are there important stories with her in there? Absolutely. But I can't point to one. It, it's, it, she doesn't have a, a Batman year one, if you will, to say, oh, that's the Phantom Girl story right there. That's the one until the Secret Origins. Well, you kind of lost me with the Durlin impersonating phase. So It's okay, fine. No, 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 I don't really, oh, no, no, no. Now I got to say it. No. There was a Durlin on the Legion team. I'm You'll cutting find this out all- anyway. It doesn't matter. No, you're not. No, you're not. There was a Durlin on the Legion team, and she was in the future. They switched places. And the Durlin became R.J. Brand, the guy who the Legion wasn't R.J. Brand Legion. already a Durlin. Well, that's that he that's him. He got he the Durlin from the 20th century goes to the future and changes into R and becomes R.J. Brand. He is the R.J. Brand, the Durlin of the future. He's from our time. He's from the 20th century originally. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Cuz Comics, brother. Cuz Comics. <laughs> All right, listeners, I'm going to process that for a minute. We're going to take a promotional break. We will return in a minute with the heretofore untold origin of Phantom Girl. Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter Batman Doctor Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort! And many, many more. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? 
Secret Origins, issue 42, was cover dated July 1989, but a fresh first copy would have hit the shelves on May 25th that year. The price was still $1.50 for 48 pages, and the cover to issue 42 was penciled by Dick Giordano, allegedly, with inks by Carl Kessel. (laughs) Said cover shows Phantom Girl phasing up through a table surrounded by fellow Legionnaires, Superboy, Saturn Girl, Colossal Boy, Brainiac 5, Sun Boy, and Ultra Boy. Also on the cover is a black banner running down the left-hand side with the question, Who is the Grim Ghost above a shadowy visage? Shag, what do you think of this cover? I'm really glad you said it's allegedly by Dick Giordano <laughs> because Dick Giordano is famous for many things, including drawing beautiful women. And I'm not saying sexy voluptuous. I'm saying beautiful women, stunningly beautiful women. Carl Kiesel, he is no slouch in the inking department. And this cover is a bit of a disappointment when you know who the creators are. If you told me this was, I don't know, maybe a Kurt Swan and Carl Kiesel cover, I could have bought into it or because it's, it's sort of – a little boring. It, it looks very silver. It, it captures the Silver Age Legion quite well. But again, that combination, I expected something a little different. It looks like an homage to something, doesn't it? It does. Well, you know what it looks like? It looks like she, she looks like a girl popping out of a cake is what she looks like. <laughs> she's, she's got kind of a fun and sexy pose, but it just doesn't – the art just like, – and like the face in the background. It's just kind of there. It just looks, again, very Silver age bland instead of beautiful, which is what I would expect from him, from Dick Giordano. Now, I do like the theme of pairing up Phantom Girl with Grim Ghost. That's cool. Um, I think I would have enjoyed them interacting more. Like, I like some of the F- Secret Origins covers where you see the two characters in the same space doing stuff rather than this sort of split look. I'm still heartbroken that Roy Thomas chose to give us a Grim Ghost origin story instead of a Phantom Lady origin story. Because if they had put <laughs> Phantom Girl and Phantom Lady... And by the way, if we had gotten a secret origin of Phantom Lady, it doesn't matter who the guest was on that segment. All he or she would have been able to say was, she's hot the entire time. I was going to say, I could have covered both of those. <laughs> uh, pretty much in just one one go. <laughs> I, I know you would have. <laughs> yeah, it's... It does. You're right. It does look like an homage. It's so plain, it looks like it's an homage. Uh, yeah, and, it and here's another like thing. It's a Silver Age cover that they've just redone, but it's... Here's something else. Superboy's on the cover. It's post-crisis. It's has anyone checked their watch? It's way past post-crisis. Superboy's in the story. And, and Superboy did exist in the post-crisis Legion for a while. Uh, for about, to be exact, I'd say another thirteen. No, yeah, thirteen months. Superboy existed. It was he was going to be wiped out in about thirteen months. Um, but uh, they don't like to talk about it at this point. So it's surprising they stuck him on the cover. And if one of our Legion folks can tell us, oh, yeah, this was from the cover of Adventure Comics, you know, then we apologize. But I, I, didn't, I didn't come across that in my research. But uh, even still, like, I like the foreground image. I think they look good. The image in the back, it, I, I'm guessing that's supposed to be her on the monitor. Yes, that is, that is. Well, it's almost like a who's who entry where you get the foreground of the character doing something and in the background you get a close-up of their face. It's very much like a who's who. But I don't know why we get that image, like why we need that close-up of her face when her face isn't obscured or anything. And also... Again, Carl Kiesel is a great inker, but some of the line work on that makes her look older. And like, I almost thought, is that supposed to be her mother or something? I don't know. I'd... Now, if I was told this was a Dave Cockrum cover inked by Carl Kiesel, I'd believe that. Hmm, yeah. And Dave Cockrum drew the inside, so maybe they just misattributed it. Could be. Well, speaking of the inside, are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of Phantom Girl? 
Yes. This story is entitled Bad, 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 Bad Boys. Hey, everybody, guess what song I'm going to play for this segment? (laughs) I hope you like Gloria Estefan. Uh, the script is by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, penciling Dave Cockrum, inkers Larry Malstead and Jim Sanders, colorist Tom McGraw. Interestingly enough, colorist Tom McGraw would later on go on to write the Legion comic with Mark Wade and Tom Payer. Uh, letters by John Costanza, editor Mark Wade. Again, another name who goes on to write the Legion. Phantom Girl created by Jerry Siegel and Jim Mooney. Now, just to give you a little historical perspective, as you mentioned, this comic hit the shelves in May 1989. It came out... Four months before two interesting things happen with the Legion. Four months from here, the character of FaZe does appear in the acronym Legion series. Again, that's Phantom Girl. And again, they, they wiggle around with the continuity of it later. But that is Phantom Girl in the 20th century. Then, Also four months from the publication of this, Tom Mary Beerbaum will go on to script the very first issue of Legion Superheroes number one, the five year later with Keith Giffen. So this is this is really one of their earliest times they got to brush up against the Legion. They were Tom and Mary Beerbaum were a married couple who were huge fans of the Legion, huge, huge, huge fans of the Legion, and uh, this was one of the first chances they got to touch it. And oddly enough, this same story where they talk about Ultra Boy, they go back and revisit it in their Legion five year later run as well. So I think they're a little too fascinated with it, and it, that's where a lot of the story comes from. It, a lot of it comes from Adventure Comics number three sixteen which was published in January 1964. That's the whole issue with the Ultra Boy criminal story that we're going to talk about in a minute. So a lot of the pieces come from that. And uh, some of the pieces come from Superboy 147, where they reveal how Phantom Girl joined the team. And the rest of it, as they said, is made up. So with all that preamble out of the way, let's get to the origin itself. The comic opens on a starship soaring across space. Inside, we find Phantom Girl, and she's distraught. She's thinking about the boy she's crushing on, named Jonah, who's also known as the heroic Ultra Boy. Something has gone terribly wrong, and she just can't believe this is happening. Just that morning, she was flirting with Ultra Boy in the gymnasium. By the way, she wasn't even being remotely subtle. Shortly afterwards, Ultra Boy was shockingly accused of a terrible crime. Even though he protested his innocence, the evidence did appear to be concrete. So the Legion voted to formally expel Ultra Boy from the team. When the Legion were in the process of arresting Ultra Boy for the crime, he then made a break for it and he escaped. And at this point, when we join the Legion on the starship, they are hunting down Ultra Boy before he can betray the Legion's secrets. A little bit heartbreaking there. His Phantom Girl just cannot believe that Ultra Boy is a criminal. She knows there's a difference between bad boys and good boys. And she should know. Because apparently, if you ever want to meet an expert on bad boys, Phantom Girl's your girl. Then we get a flashback. Or a second flashback. Because we need more flashbacks. We flashback to Tina's youth, back on her home planet of Begitzel, which is, looks like a mitzoplic nightmare of a word to pronounce. It's a planet of folks who can become intangible and walk through walls. Everyone on the planet can become intangible. So on a planet with people with all those abilities, privacy laws become really important. And Tina's mother was an attorney and a leading authority on privacy laws. She was very sought after, and therefore she was away from home quite often. We see that Tina, has, in, the, in the absence of her mother, has developed a very close relationship with her father. At an early age, Tina begins experiencing dreams in which she's traveling to another world. And this world is dubbed, again, this weird word, which has no vowels, Begitstel 2, which is actually Earth. And it was very clear from an early age that Tina was going to be an exceptional phaser, which means you know, walking through walls, things like that. In her adolescent years, Tina began to rebel. With her upper-class rearing and her uptight mother, she was naturally attracted to the more dangerous types. And, you know, the bad boys, people like me and Ryan. 
<laughs> she, uh, so she trolled the seedy bars until she found herself a sufficiently bad boy boyfriend named Quick. Rather apropos name if you think about it. Together they decided to break some rules. And we mentioned the privacy laws earlier. Well, it turns out there are specific zones on Begitstel which allow you to visit based upon the privacy rules. So zones that are identified with the color black were available to anyone, whereas zones identified with the color white were, well, they were very restricted. Let's not go into any sort of subtext there, folks, okay? And Tina and Quick decided to peek into the white zone. So it turns out that once they go through there, it's essentially a hedonistic orgy for famous politicians and dignitaries. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and up to this point, Tina sort of believed herself to be a bad girl. But when she came face to face with this orgy, she realized that she's actually a scared little prude. Her words, not mine, folks. When they were caught, poor Quick had his phasing powers completely stripped. Well, Tina's mom was pretty well connected, so instead of losing her phasing powers, she was sent off to an all-girls school, which to her was a torture worse than death because there's no boys. While there, she heard more about Begitstel 2, which is, uh, again, known as Earth, and there was this new group of teens that were coming into the news called the Legion of Superheroes. Sadly, while Tina was away at school, her father passed away. And Tina's bitterness towards her mother grew and grew, and eventually she decided to flee Begitstel for Earth. She hooked up with one of Quick's old rivals, a guy named Kynar. I'm telling you, this girl's got a great choice in men. With Kynar's help, she stows away in a freighter heading for Earth. And uh, you see, Begitstel is separated from Earth's dimension by a buffer zone, also sometimes called the Phantom Zone. Ah, ah, get it? See, see, see? And so the freighter had to cross dimensions, which was going to require some kind of tricky phasing from her. Kynar promised her a job also when they would arrive to Earth. She said, you know, he said, I'll, I'll help smuggle you and you'll have a job on Earth when you get there. Turns out the job involved a criminal gang, which was led by Meglaro and Dr. Landro. Though they're not named in this story, I read in the notes in the back, turns out they're old Legion villains from the Silver Age. But Tina couldn't go through with the crime and she single-handedly brought down the gang. Getting a taste for saving the day, Tina put together a costume, all in white, and decided to go meet the Legion. She phased through their clubhouse walls, frightening and impressing the Legion members at the same time. So they invited her to join the team on the spot, way to go in the background checks, folks, and uh, asked her for help in securing the clubhouse even further. Phantom Girl was then inducted into the Legion with Triplicate Girl, growing the Legion from three members to five in the same day. And if Ryan had done his research, he would have known that too. While the Legion was a wonderful life, she did think some of the boy members were a little dull. And while she was on a mission to Rimbor fighting a bad guy, this, this cracks me up, she spots this ultra-dreamy guy in the crowd, right? So she decides to play the damsel in distress in the middle of this fight, which she clearly could win, just to see if Mr. Mick ultra-dreamy might jump in and play hero. Sure enough, he did. Later, Tina tries to manipulate the Legion recruiting policies just to get Mick Ultra Dreamy inducted into the Legion. It took a while, but Jonah was eventually inducted as the 12th member of the Legion as Ultra Boy. And here's the crazy part. While Tina was totally crushing on Mick Ultra Dreamy, he totally friend-zoned her. Seriously, what is wrong with the guy? I don't get it. So we cut back to the present. We're done with the flashbacks for now. And, well, by present, I do mean the 30th century present. The starship's closing in on the world where Ultra Boy had fled after the Legion attempted to arrest him. Tina finds McUltra Dreamy just as a band of outlaws confronts Ultra Boy. These are clearly the outlaws that actually committed the crime that Ultra Boy was wrongly accused of. When Ultra Boy's reputation is now as a criminal himself, they recruit him to infiltrate the Legion. Oh, no. He gladly goes along with it if it will cause the Legion headaches. They break into the Legion headquarters, but... Turns out, Ultra Boy and Phantom Girl turn the tables by betraying the outlaws and turning them over to the Legion. It was all a trick. It was all a plan by Ultra Boy to catch the real criminals who framed him. 
Ultra Boy thanks Phantom Girl for having faith in him. He speaks of their friendship, and she goes all nutso on him. She's yelling at him that a girl showing this much interest in a guy is way more than friendship. And uh, there's a bit of a banter, basically, and, and some flirting, and finally he kisses the girl. And it is the start of a beautiful relationship. The end. Who do you think was the intended audience for this story? I don't know. <laughs> he, uh... Because I, I think, can we generally accept that the majority of comic book readers are young males? Certainly in the late 80s, more so probably than today. I would say teen males at yeah. that point. Okay. I would say 14 to 15. And this story is not targeted at that age demographic. It's almost targeted at 10-year-old girls. I was going to say, like when I was this age... The last thing I wanted was a protagonist who's boy crazy. Right. That's what the story is. Like, she is boy crazy. And there are elements of the story that I really like, but there's also a lot where I'm just like, oh my god, this is so regressive compared to like the the female protagonists that we're getting today. Like, every decision she makes is just so that the boy will like her. And with the exception of inexplicably the most popular Twilight saga, like that, is, that is not what we look for in female protagonists in our you know science fiction fantasy stories these days. And well, I would say the Legion comics didn't even represent females this way at this point in 1989. Like you know, we read the Great Darkness saga, and that was you know that's the early 80s mm-hmm. that storyline. Then you go into the Curse, you go into the Steve Lytle issues later. At, you know, um, the Legion was represented with lots of strong, powerful women. You know, shrinking. Violet was coming into her own. Light Lass, or uh, Lightning Lass, whichever power she had at the time, was widely regarded as a very strong, powerful character. Well, just the numbers alone, when we talk about she was the fifth member, Triplicate Girl was the fourth, or they were inducted in the same day. If you take Superboy out of the equation, Mm -hmm. that means the first five members, there are more girls than there are boys. Yeah. Like, what other comic property would do that at the time? Like, the Justice League couldn't have more than one woman on the team for this first (laughs) 20 years. Well, you talk about taking Superman out of, Superboy out of the equation. I mean, keep in mind, she joined before Superboy is yeah. what they're saying. So, yeah, it's – and so, and then she's boy crazy, but then it goes almost like 50s romance comic where she snuggles under the blanket with the guy to stay warm, but she makes a very big point of like, hey, don't try anything, buddy. <laughs> it's her boy – first of all, it's her boyfriend. They're in a – you know, and she's, you know, I guess 19. I don't know. She's her boyfriend, and she's stowed away in a ship, and they're under a blanket. Really? You know, it's – Anyway, it's... Okay, her boyfriend, though, but she hooks up with him to get a ride out of town. And she says, I'll seal the deal with a kiss. It's like, whoa, okay, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. Like... Like this, the the front end, like all of the flashback stuff, and this is actually the things I like. And it's this is a young woman's coming into her own sexuality. I mean, the story, yeah. like from the yeah. beginning, when she's a young girl, she's got this connection to her father, but she's dreaming of this sort of phantom zone, this other world. There's a lot of kind of fluid imagery that I'm, I can't not read into that subtext. She, uh, oh, you know, seriously? Okay. <laughs> She's hooking up with, like, you know, she's going to venture into the bad boys, the bad part of town that her mother tells her to dismiss. And uh, you pointed out the guy named Quick, right. the first boyfriend, <laughs> who's – talk about a plunging neckline on a character. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
And I got to wonder how much of this is being pulled from classic Phantom Girl stories. I mean, it really does appear that not much is. All the stuff with Ultra Boy definitely is. You know, mm-hmm. for meeting Ultra Boy, Ultra Boy being accused of being a criminal, that's all clearly pulled from that issue of uh, – well, most of it's pulled from Adventure Comics 316. That's the one where Ultra Boy is a criminal. In fact, page two where they're zapping his like, – they're like burning his Ultra Boy symbol off his chest. Mm-hmm. That's actually the cover of that Adventure Comics. Okay. So that, that was an homage right there. But uh, yeah. I, it, but then like when she's with Quick, you know, her boyfriend pressures her to cross this border, go over the edge yeah. of this like forbidden zone. She ends up in like an orgy. It's like the Playboy Mansion's grotto or whatever. It's bad. Where <laughs> somehow there's like a – it feels like there's a panel missing because she gets there and all of a sudden in the second panel she's in the water. Like she fell or got pushed in or something. And she's sexually, almost sexually assaulted by this fat old senator or something. Oh, I had to think about that too because I was wondering is she being assaulted or not. Basically she's – He's coming on to her Mm -hmm. is what happens. So, but yeah, now you can see she's all transparent, which means she's phasing at that point. But um, yeah, you're right. I don't know that there's a panel missing. It it just seems like they moved along quickly. But yes, there's obviously subtext there where the boyfriend pushes her into breaking the rules and suddenly they're in a sexual encounter. No doubt about that. Now, Cockrum did some weird things with her, like, like if you, and this is stepping away from the sexuality goes, but if, if you look at her face throughout the issue, I don't know whether he, he – it's not that he didn't make her pretty, but he did some weird things with her face. Like she's angry a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, she's yelling a lot. Her expressions aren't what you would see normally in, in, as comic book beautiful. I mean Cochran by this point had drawn – you know he drew all the, the early issues of the X-Men. Yeah. He drew a beautiful Jean Grey, a beautiful Storm. You know, he drew – he knew how to get around a beautiful woman, but you don't see that really here. Phantom Girl, no, I, at no point would I say she's very pretty. You know, the way he draws her, she's, you know, her face and like, as you flip through it, a lot of her panels, she doesn't come across that way. I'm wondering, because there are two different inkers on this. And I mean, like you mentioned, all of the X-Men stories, those were 10 years before this. I don't know what the state of his, what his pencils, what his eyes were like at this point. I don't know how his style had evolved, but he's got two different inkers. One of them, Larry Malstead, was a regular inker on the Legion books, and he was... He was pretty solid. I, so mm-hmm. I don't know. But the yeah. other one, the other credited inker is Jim Sanders. I don't know him. so I'm not familiar with him either. Maybe, yeah. maybe some of the issues we're having with her facial expressions have more to do with the inking. I don't know. Oh, it's consistently throughout the whole issue, though. Yeah, that's true. So, it's, it's, not my, it's not my favorite story. I'm just going to no, put it out. Uh, it's not. I, I, I like the story as you know, oh, a young woman kind of discovering her sexuality. But it leads into this very old-fashioned, like you said, she makes herself the damsel in distress in order right. to secure the boy's attention. <laughs> and it's like, it makes her not a hero that I want to follow. This story honestly could be covered by Siskoid and the guys on Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast. That occurred to because, me. Because like, by the end of it, when she like she's basically yelling at Ultra Boy that he didn't pay attention to her, and he's like, well, I didn't think you paid attention to me. And, and she's like, you're an idiot. And like, But they end up hugging and kissing. It's like, oh my gosh, what? Uh, so, <laughs> I don't... It's, like, I keep saying there are elements of the story that I'm fascinated by, but as a whole, I'm like, 
this didn't endear the character to me. Right, and she doesn't come across as a as a terribly likable person based on her using all these guys. Right, right. You know, and the way she and, and the way she's kind of got Ultra Boy wrapped around her finger essentially is what she did. Mm-hmm. You know, the weird thing is, you know, we talk about the scripting, and you, it's funny that you mentioned Siskoid Show because it did it did make me think of a bit of a romance comic, not a well composed one, but sort of that old style. Because again, I mentioned Tom and Mary Beerbaum are going to script mm-hmm. four months from this point the Legion Five Year Later book. And their scripting is nothing like this at all. No, and it's I, a very, very dark dystopian book. Right, and I've talked about them before because they scripted the Fire Origin in back in Secret Origins issue thirty-three that Tim Wallace and I, who's also part of the Legion of Super Bloggers, we covered that one and we talked about the beer bombs and how they got that gig. But that was a bit of a goofy story too, though. Remember? Oh yeah, no, it was. First, it was very first time you read it, you didn't like that one either. Right. So. Until you discovered the, the Cherry Pop Tart art. <laughs> <laughs> that, that changed a lot. Not just in, not just in how I view that story, but really how I view myself. Right, and <laughs> how you read comics not around your wife anymore. <laughs> so uh, you know, w- let's go for the trifecta here. Um, we've already talked about Ohatmu or not. We've already talked about <laughs> the Lonely Hearts. Might as well mention the Invasion podcast Siskoid does because I mentioned Phase, which uh, it happens also four months after this issue. That's really where after this, if you wanted to read Phantom Girl stories, you would go to the Acronym Legion series and read about Phase. And the Acronym Legion series comes out of the Invasion crossover. So there you go, Siskoid. I think we plugged everything you do that's the hat trick good job there it is one other thing that i i kind of glossed over it in my first read but looking at it again i actually really like her costume before she joins the team like when she first arrives on earth with this other guy this older like would-be han solo dash rendar type of guy who's actually just luring her into a criminal empire She's got like this kind of it's like different shades of blue with like mm-hmm. gold bracelets and gold uh her like ex- her legs are exposed. <laughs> and given the fact that so many of the female legionnaires have white costumes like Dream Girl, Phantom Girl, uh, White Witch, they all have these sort of white. Interesting. I like this look as an alternative. Now I like for a girl called Phantom Girl, I like the white ghosty look. But this is also a cool costume, and I mean, if Dave Cockrum was good at costume design, so maybe he just threw this up, or I don't know if this costume had ever appeared anywhere else, but I dig it. I think I know why you like it. Because, it because you, it reminds me of Black Canary? Because it reminds you of Black Canary. I actually, I just looked at now, like, looking at the, <laughs> the color scheme and the design and everything, yep. it looks like Black Canary during the Chuck Dixon run of Birds of Prey. When she had the short, when she yep. was, not before she got the pants. Yep. Right, right. Yeah, sort of the that, that first, era very between... first Gary Frank, Birds of Prey story. Yeah, but before before JSA, because she had the pants when she was in JSA. Yeah. So, so that's exactly what it is. <laughs> when I look at it, that's all I see. And of course you like it, Black Canary Goober. Oh, God damn. <laughs> Again, my favorite costume is in her apparition period in the, uh, the post-five-year-later apparition before Crisis, before uh, Zero Hour. Although I think the costume is kind of similar. Either way, just look up the Cosmic Teams trading cards by Adam Hughes, Phantom Girl card. It's gorgeous. It's a great costume. It looks really sharp. Because they really, the black, when there's more black in her costume, it accents off her hair. And it yeah. just works. It really, really works. I like the disco suit with the bell bottoms from the Levitz Giffen era. But I also haven't seen the costume that you're talking about, so... Well, yeah, the the disco outfit's pretty hot. I mean, there's no denying that. He he knew what he... Now, again, that was Dave Cockrum. He knew what he was doing there. <laughs> I mean, other than the obvious, I don't have a whole lot to say about the story. I'm a little tired of reading about the time that Ultra Boy turned into a criminal. 
<laughs> just because, again, Tom and Mary Beerbaum will revisit this not too far in the future in their five-year later story. I want to say it was in an annual. I don't know. Dr. Ann's write in and tell me if I'm right or wrong there. But they revisit that whole storyline again. And, in fact, the first time I read this, I, I, I wrote Ryan a message because I was angry. I read it, and I'm like, what the hell? Seriously? This is not even a Phantom Girl story. This is an Ultra Boy story. Because it's all about Ultra Boy turning bad. But now, when I when I wrote the recap, I had to step back from it and realize, actually, Ultra Boy doesn't get a lot of pages in this. Truthfully, it is more uh, about Phantom Girl and, again, this journey she goes on as a boy-crazy troublemaker who, as uh, Tom Mary Beerbaum mentioned, they sneak cigarettes in the, in, the, in the bathroom. I actually wish we could have gotten that part of the story with her, <laughs> her smoking. <laughs> that would have been hot. <laughs> right, yeah. Smoking in the girls' room. Do, 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 do. There's another song for you. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I got. I mean, are there? We've talked about a lot of other Phantom Girl stories, or at least her appearances in them. Uh, did you have recommendations for a good one? Was there? That's the tricky thing with this character because uh, she's she's in so many Legion stories. You know, as we said in the beginning that she had the longest unbroken career. At this point, I want to say it was 14 years straight in the Legion without ever leaving the team. And yet, she was always just kind of there. She was on the mission. She'd be in the espionage squad, which is pretty cool. But she was never the main focus. So, and also, bear in mind, my experience comes in in the five-year-later era forward. So I would say, all right, for me, the quote-unquote further reading section, I would first suggest you watch the Legion of Superheroes cartoon. There were two seasons of it. It's a load of fun. She is featured heavily in the story. So that would give you a good chance to see Phantom Girl in action without a lot of investment. If you like the classic Legion stuff, pick up the archives. She's all over the archives, guys. She, she appears a lot in those. Go out to the Legion of Superbloggers. Read the Phantom Girl Who's Who entry that Siskoid and Russell put together. That can give you lots of tips on good stories in there. But for my money, I would tell you to read the post-Zero Hour Legion. So this would be the first reboot era. So you can go out and if you want to find the specific issues, you would get Legion of Superheroes number zero. And then uh, number 62, because the, the number zeros appear in the middle of the run. So it would be 0 and 62, and Legionnaire 0 and 19, and just read forward from there. Or you can find, uh, there was a trade paperback printed um, many years ago, but it was called Legion of Superheroes, The Beginning of Tomorrow, which collected this post-zero hour era of Legion. It's out of print now, but you can find it on Amazon for 7 bucks used. So it's called Legion of Superheroes, The Beginning of Tomorrow, which covers the post-crisis Legion, and Phantom Girl is a member there, and it's great. Other than that, Guys, the Legion's been around for over 50 years. Mm-hmm. Just find some era you want You want to try. Pick something that looks interesting to you. If you like classic stuff, pick up some classic stories. If you like more recent, pick up the new 52, whatever. With all the reboots, with all the collected editions, tons in the quarter bins, there is bound to be a story that takes place in some era that appeals to your tastes. And more than likely, Phantom Girl's going to be in it. And by the end of it, you're going to have a crush on her. Send me an email. Tell me thanks. Yeah, I kind of defer back to my first experience with them, which was the the Mark Wade Barry Kitson run, which was the the three boot, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember a lot about her in that one again, but I know like she was always there. And as I remember that, it, I think they kind of established that her homeworld Begitzel or whatever it is <laughs> and Earth are sort of in the same physical space, but just That's sort of cool. out of sync in different dimensions. And Phantom Girl coexists in both of them at the same time. So she'll often be having conversations with people in two different worlds. So it looks like she's just talking to herself. I just thought that was a, an interesting way, like an exploration of her powers. I thought that was kind of cool. I, you know, Mark Wade's always clever with that kind of stuff. And again, having Barry Kitts and drawers, no slouch. Now that was an interesting outfit there too, because it was sort of like uh, the, like the Dave Cochran outfit, except they gave her a black oval over the chest. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, Kitson just oh, knocks it out of the park. Yeah. 
So it's just any character in, in whatever iteration. Yep. So any final thoughts before we go on Phantom Girl or the Legion in general? I heart you, Tina. <laughs> All right. Well then, Shag, will you please tell our listeners where else they can find you in the podcasto or blogosphere? Sure. You can find me here, right here, on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am part of uh, a few of the shows. The Aquaman and Firestorm show, which was uh, also called Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water Podcast, was kind of the impetus that kind of got the network off and running. The Who's Who Podcast, I'm one of the co-hosts of that. I host a show of my own called Justice League International, the Bwahaha Podcast. And I also occasionally, and I do mean very occasionally, like maybe once a year, do something called the Hero Points Podcast with our good buddy Siskoid. And uh, I've been begging him to do a Legion episode for the longest time. So we're probably going to do a Justice League episode first, but maybe we'll get around to doing a Legion episode. Yeah, well, we're all looking forward to that. We're holding our breath in anticipation. <laughs> You're going to turn blue quick. <laughs> Shag, thank you one more time for being on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you, Secret Admirers, for tolerating my deep, deep-seated love of Phantom Girl. All right, folks, we are going to take another break, but when I come back, the already thrice-promoted Siskoid is going to join me for the secret origin of the Grim Ghost. That guy's coming back? <laughs> the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty! In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass. <laughs> we oh, just yeah. turned on him! <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is romance comics theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We've had a comic book romance. We're back and we're talking about the Grim Ghost. Well, we were actually talking about a character called the Gay Ghost, but in 1989, when this issue of Secret Origins came out, DC Comics decided to rebrand him as the Grim Ghost. And here to help me uncover the legend of this largely forgotten hero is the host of the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, Siskoid. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Ryan. So why this character? Why the gay ghost or grim ghost? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know when I said yes to this, (laughs) Uh, but I've said many times I'm a fan of obscure characters and Golden Age characters, and this is an obscure Golden Age character, so uh, I'm immediately drawn to it, even though I have no real uh, affection for the character. Well, I remember you being a little bit more enthusiastic, because I think I gave you, I submitted a list of a bunch of characters, and you were like, no, not interested at all. I'm like, what about the gay ghost? And you're like, ah, now you're talking. (laughs) Well, yeah, he is at that crossroads of, uh, and slightly ridiculous characters as well. Mm -hmm. As we'll see, the the origin is a little touch convoluted. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And, of course, there's the whole gay ghost, grim ghost uh, idea. And it didn't actually change, it didn't change with Secret Origins. It didn't change with Who's Who, which was uh, where I first met the character. Mm -hmm. It actually changed, they changed the name in the the early 70s uh, when they reprinted the story from Sensation Comics number 8 in World's Finest 212 
they re-lettered his name so that it would be the Grim Ghost instead of the Gay Ghost. Ah, I didn't so, know that. So that's the first instance of him changing his name, a sign of the changing times. I did not know that sort of thing. When I picked up this issue of Secret Origins, and I'll be honest, I didn't read this story until about two months ago. And I've had this issue for about a year, but... I, I looked at the cover, and we don't get a good image of him on the cover. He's just sort of off to the sideline. And I knew that there was a character called the Grim Ghost published by Atlas Comics. Right. Like in the 70s. He had like three issues, and he had probably, might have had other appearances, but, but that was what I knew. I just assumed that this was that character. He was this highwayman character that DC must have acquired or something the way they acquired the Charlton characters. So I had no idea who this other guy was until I read this comic. I was like, what is this? And then I did the backstory. I was like, okay, he was the gay ghost. They felt like changing the title. I can understand that because, you know, when I was reading comics in the late 80s, early 90s, I wasn't going to pick up a, a book about a character named the gay ghost. So I guess knowing your audience a little bit might have informed that decision. Yeah, and the, I mean, the word changed, mm-hmm. evolved, and it came to mean something else. Sure, yeah, actually, yeah, at the time in the 40s, Gay did have different connotation. Just the word itself was yep. different. So, and his stories use the word queer quite a lot as well. Uh, his his original <laughs> stories, the word queer comes up a lot, but to mean uh, odd or strange. Sure, uh, but I mean it's it's uh, it's it's pretty. Uh, I'll say odd, not to say queer, but it's 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 strange how the stories today almost accidentally uh, seem to have that kind of innuendo in it. It boggles my mind why they even wanted to bring him back or whose idea this was. Well, Roy Thomas. <laughs> I, I'm I'm assuming, but I mean, this was you know this is published a year after he had left the book for a while. Like, was this something that they had had in the can for a while and just been sitting on? Or I think it must have been because it's Roy Thomas with Michael Bear, mm-hmm. and uh, they collaborated on a number of early Secret Origins. Yeah, yeah, they did a lot. So this might have been made at the same time, and then Roy Thomas wasn't on the book anymore. You know, so they had this like this file story. The uh, they changed the mandate of what mm-hmm. Secret Origins would be, so there were fewer uh, Golden Age stories. Mm-hmm. But they still had that one on file, and Mark Wade eventually trotted it out, maybe saying, oh, well, Phantom Girl, oh, I, we've got this Grim Ghost story on file. Might as well you know, get it finished or just uh, you know, publish it alongside. That might have been the origin of the secret origin of why this is in Secret Origins at all. <laughs> but he's a very early character, appeared at the same time as Wonder Woman. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, that goes with Roy Thomas's plan, original plan to make the heroes come out, the, the, the stories come out in the same order as the characters originally. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Uh, you know, that's as good a, a guess as any. And, the, and he, used, he did use the Grim Ghost in an issue of All-Star, uh, Young All-Stars, okay. but that's about it. Uh, that leads to the publication history that I had, and this might be full of holes. You can let me know, because I'm sure you've already mentioned some appearances that I didn't know about. The character then called The Gay Ghost debuted in the first issue of Sensation Comics, the same issue that introduced the world to Wonder Woman. Unlike Wonder Woman, however, the ghost's publishing life did not survive World War II. He appeared regularly in 32 of the first 33 issues of Sensation, as well as in Comic Cavalcade issue 4, published in 1943. His final pre-crisis appearance, other than reprints, was in Sensation Comics issue 38, cover dated February 1945, but released in December of 1944. After the crisis, so far as I knew... 
And I, I didn't know about the appearance in Young All-Stars, but I knew that he appeared in this issue of Secret Origins, and a year later, in 1990, he appeared in Animal Man issue 25, where Buddy Baker encountered him in the comic book Limbo. Yes, people, comic book Limbo is an actual place in that Animal Man saga. And the gay ghost said that he didn't want to leave, probably because his name was Gay Ghost, and the 1980s and 90s would not have been kind to that fact, so... Uh, was there anything else that I missed? Sure. Well, <laughs> of course, there was the reprint in World's Finest, but he also appeared in a, not a story, but a feature uh, in Brave and the Bold number 116 uh, in the 70s, which was called uh, Heroes Who Wouldn't Die, which is ghosts and robot man and people okay. like that each got a little file. So he was still in, you know, some people still remembered him, in other words. Okay. Uh, and then the, the limboed Grim Ghost, or Gay Ghost, reappeared in Graham Morrison's Final Crisis Superman Beyond 3D. So he was still in limbo, according to Graham Morrison at that point. And uh, he had a couple of cameos from uh, the pen of James Robinson uh, in Starman. 62 and 66, I think, and okay. in Golden Age 4, cameos only. It's like we see him fighting the shade back in, back in the 40s, that kind of thing, but no dialogue or anything for the character. Mm. And uh, he appeared, apparently, I haven't seen these, but he appeared in a couple of uh, issues of the digital uh, first comics, uh, the Scooby-Doo team-up. Yes, okay. cameos in that, where uh, in stories with uh, different ghostly characters, Dead Man, Phantom Stranger, and he's, he's probably in the background there, there somewhere. So there's that. And there's that weird, uh, and I haven't seen this episode, but he's the subject of a Law and Order episode. <laughs> well, okay. Oh, all right, time out, time out. <laughs> okay, you mentioned a lot of appearances that I didn't realize he was in. But Law and Order? Law and Order, season 20, okay, episode I just, 22. I just watched an episode of Orange is the New Black where they were talking about Dr. Psycho and the Wonder Woman origin. Okay. But you're saying that he, this guy, okay. Grim Ghost, was in Law and Order? Season 20, episode 22, Love Eternal. It's about comic books. Uh, and the gay ghost is mentioned, and there's a running gag with the phrase, he was cheerful. It's a recurring line mm. to explain the, the character's outdatedness. I haven't seen the episode. I, I don't watch Law and Order, but <laughs> this is this is accurate according to my sources. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm gonna have I to track down that episode now. Yeah, people. I think people remember him because the name is now amusing. He's not famous, but he's infamous. Okay, <laughs> that's a, that that honestly floored me. I don't know what I'm going. <laughs> oh man. But he was cheerful. I get it. Okay. He was cheerful. You have to find a clip, I suppose. I do. I'm going to have to look for that now. So. All right. Um, well, you schooled me on that. I, I really did not think the character had that much of a presence. But he certainly did. Um, are you ready to tell our listeners the origin of the gay ghost? Yes, I am. Uh, the Secret Origin of Grim Ghost by writer uh, Roy Thomas, artist Michael Baer, letterers Gene Simek and Janice Chang, Colorist Helen Vezik and consulting editor Mark Wade. Adapted from the story in Sensation Comics Number no. One, 1942, by Gardner F. Fox and Howard Purcell. The year is 1700. On the dot, the place is County Ulster, Ireland. Keith Everett, the Earl of Strathmere, is killed by footpads while on his way to ask his beloved Deborah Wallace's hand in marriage. 
She runs to his side just in time to hear his final words that he has willed her castle cannot and that they'll be together someday in the afterlife. But the afterlife isn't as expected. There he meets his valorous ancestors who offer him the chance to return to Earth as an avenger of injustice, though he must wait for Deborah before beginning that new life. This conversation apparently takes a century. There's some training involved because Everett is returned to a time when Deborah is long dead. So he waits and haunts Castle Connaught until 1941. That's when Deborah's great 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 grandniece, also named Deborah, arrives from America to visit her birthright, the castle, with Charles Collins, a man intent on marrying her. His attentions continually rebuffed. Unbeknownst to any of them, three Nazi spies on the run also arrive to hole up in the castle. Deborah sees the ghost of Keith Everett and, spooked, Races downstairs just in time to see Charles gunned down by the spies, and the woman, who is a dead ringer for Everett's love, is to be next. This triggers the grim ghost, who possesses Charlie Collins' prone body and fights the Nazis. Two are killed, and the ghost leaves Charles' corpse to deal with the third, appearing as solid ectoplasm and flying the German to London to surrender him to the authorities, along with the military secrets he'd stolen. He then returns to Castle Connaught, takes control of Charles's lifeless body again. Despite his unfamiliarity with the modern world, he will try to live as one of us so he can be with Deborah, and together they return to America. He brings with him but one souvenir of his former life, a painting of the 17th century's Earl of Strathmere. And that is all. And it's the painting that also he kind of lived in during all those centuries. <laughs> It's not really uh, – the original story does do a lot more with that, but here it's like just a mention. How long was the original story? The original story is uh, – let me let me look at my uh, – it's uh, 13 pages. Okay. And it's got fewer details sometimes and more details other times. So there, there's, uh, there's less of a – like you know how the story the, – I didn't really mention it, but the, the story starts in, in an inn – Mm-hmm. In 1700, and there's... Uh, you get a lot of time focused on yes. the guys who kill Everett. Right. Like and his murderers, yeah. Right, and there's a, there's like a seductress there that's part of that group who looks very sinister and sometimes gets shots all to herself, mm-hmm. looking sinister, and then she never appears again. Right. Uh, that's that's not in the original story. Yeah, and she's I don't think she's like caught and executed with the others. So but like she's like the whole like motive. Like this guy wants to impress her, he basically wants to sleep with her, and she's like, You're not rich enough. He's like, Well then I'll just go rob some people. But she's there, like she's witnessing this event or anything, but there's just a lot of attention paid on this woman and her cleavage. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, Michael Bear does a good job of drawing her, but why are we spending so much time on these characters? She's not in the original story. Okay. Uh, in the original story, the 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 guy, the, the the three guys are intimidating this this one instead of being the uh, sort of guy that's attracted to that woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just get out of our inn. Uh, you're not gentlemen like us, or he's just like a pauper or something. Mm-hmm. And that guy races off. And then they see, you know, there, there's that same intersection of characters where the Earl uh, Everett sort of gets messed up in, with it, in, in all that, gets his horse uh, tripped up, and this, the same story happens. But there's just that woman's not there, 
and I, I'm, it's like, is this supposed to be some kind of Roy Thomasy thing where he was planning on using Grim Ghost a bit more and to make that woman, you know, in the same way that Deborah has been sort of reincarnated as her descendant, would this have returned in whatever young All Star story he had cooked up? I don't know. It's I'm trying to put motive to it because it's just a strange element that doesn't pay off. Well, even because on page four, the last panel is just a shot of her. There's yeah. no dialogue. There's no mention of her. Like at first, I was like, "Is that Roy Thomas?" You know, including like this that we need to focus on her for one minute, or was Michael Bear just like, "I want to draw her one more time before she leaves the the issue." Because after that, there's the fight. She she sees the fight from afar. She sees it start, and then she's gone. And then they're all they're fighting. They kill Everett, and then next thing you know, they've all been hung. Yeah, but it's just the three guys. Like she's it, it doesn't appear that she's among the criminals executed or hanged. Right. Yeah, there are three guys, and then there are three Nazi spies, and there's like a mirror there, mm-hmm. except this woman who just disappears from the story. And the guy who actually shoots Everett comes out of nowhere. Like, we've seen the other two criminals before, like, palling around. It's like, where did this guy come from? He's get, he gets, like, one panel where we just see him. Again, no dialogue or anything attributed to him. He's just there taking a gun out, and then we see the gun shot later on. And it's this is something that I've mentioned about Michael Bear's work on this story and other things. Is I like his aesthetic. I like his style. To me, it's, it's reminiscent of Jay Lee without being really overly inked mm. and the way Jay Lee kind of gets really out there. It feels like a little bit more restrained. It's not as dark as that, but it's it. the line work is sort of reminiscent of that, I think. But there are just some things that he does where I'm like, I'm not sure if he's the best storyteller at well, times. That guy, I mean, if, we can track it because he's, he's the bald guy. And the bald guy is at the inn. There's a bald guy dressed in those colors at the inn. But then later when they trip up the horse, you see there are three guys. And the mm-hmm. two in the back ha- are either have short hair or are bald because the leader has longer hair and he's not in shadow, right? Okay. On page uh, four. So, and then the, the fight starts. And then by page six, when we see him draw the gun, he's at his horse. He's, he's gone to get the gun at the horse. And the, the other panel shows only two guys fighting Everett because the third is the shooter. It's it's not clear. I mean, I had. To I think I think maybe it's because times. like in all of the panels where there's together, where you see the three criminals together, he gets no detail. He's almost always a silhouette. Yeah, like we just see him kind of in the back, just like a bald silhouette. It's kind of interesting that the. I mean, in, in 1700, guns existed, uh, but that, you know, they're all swordsmen, and then he's shot by a gun. And then later on, he'll end up in, the, in, in modern times where everybody uses a gun, and uh, he keeps using a sword. So there's, the original story is exactly like this. So it's creating that mirror between maybe, you know, like he's bridging the past and the future mm-hmm. uh, or the present. I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to give too much credit to either the original story or, <laughs> or this, um, this remake, but um, uh, still, there is that element. All right. Let's get to the sort of middle chapter where we have Everett encountering his ancestors basically on this heavenly sort of ethereal plane. The ancestor who's doing the most of the talking, I, I kept thinking that he was the Black Knight from Marvel's Avengers, maybe with a touch yeah. of Dr. Fate's helmet. But- he looks like the Black Knight. Uh, especially when the they go darker on the on the red, mm-hmm. he also looks like Fat Man from the Mister America stories. 
Yeah, he does have that. But again, this was like, is this a reference? And if this, like, is this a reference to something? Because Roy Thomas, my, my simple explanation, because I would have thought he would have put a lot more, looking at these ancestors, I'm surprised he didn't link uh, the Grim Ghost to several, at least one, but several, possibly several um, historical heroes from DC's stable of characters. It's not the case. You know, I, I would have expected to see... You know the Viking prince, or you know people like that yeah. in the background, but no, they, nothing. They do look just like a, a motley assortment of warriors from different cultures. Like you do see one with a sort of barbar, like a Viking type of spiked helmet and the long beard. One more sort of druid, like with a red cloak. It, it does seem like Bear was just trying to give a little bit of detail that they're all of different. You know. Yeah. The original story didn't have that buckethead knight in it, so that's why I thought maybe there was you know something going on there. Uh, and the original stories, I've read a few. Uh, the original stories uh, had the Grim Ghost going back to his ancestors frequently, like they would give him a mission. He'd go into the afterlife or the the in between world, and they'd say, uh, "You've got to get to Europe and beat." some Nazis up and then you'd go over and prank Hitler and stuff like that. So <laughs> this actual, actual stuff. So, <laughs> um, so they were, they were recurring characters. So I would expect, okay, maybe if you're not going to link back to past history, you're going to, these characters were recurring, appeared many times. So we'll just make them look like they always looked, except they don't. Buckethead looks super important here and he is not from the original stories. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe Michael Bear was uh, didn't have access to the original story. Maybe. But then again, you know, those guys are hung much, much the same. It's like the same kind of shocking panel. Yeah. I don't know. Could Mysteries. Been. Then we flash to what is then the present, 1941. Deborah's great-great-great-niece or whatever, who looks identical to her and has the same name, comes from America to basically inherit the castle, if she can stay one night in a haunted castle. Um <laughs> With her sort of would-be boyfriend, he wants to marry her. She's kind of on the fence about it, but this guy, Charles Collins. Is that it, Charles? Charles, yep. Oh, gosh, I just thought of a Batman the Animated Series episode with Charlie Collins. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Unrelated character. But. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, but now I can only hear Ed Bagley Jr.'s voice in my head. So, Anyway, um, so yeah, they come here, and at the same time, of course, three Nazi spies break into the castle. They murder Charles Collins, and... The ghost takes over his body, which, okay, I'm fine with that as he's going to kind of use this body to fight them off and save Deborah. But by the end of the story, he's going to inhabit the body of this guy who is now dead. Permanently. Yeah. The old stories are all about, you know how you know Clark Kent has to find an excuse to leave the, uh, the room or Charles Collins... Uh, who is the grim ghost has to find an excuse to go and take a nap <laughs> just so that he can go like out as the ghost without his dead body just like falling down lifelessly and drawing yep. attention to the fact yep. that he spends he has he spends an inordinate amount of time sleeping <laughs> and, and i guess like the the gunshot wounds just heal because he's shot several times yeah, hopefully he's not, you know, a zombie or anything. His body uh, isn't decaying. We're not actually seeing the decomposition over the yeah, years. Yeah, especially if he's going to have a relationship with Deborah, uh, and it, it, because of the new, because of the personality implant, if you will. Well, 
maybe now she gives him more of a chance. Now he's more uh, heroic and mm-hmm. uh, and bizarre <laughs> because he, you know he's talking about cars as if they were horseless wagons, and she's going, "This is a very strange joke." <laughs> but he keeps doing that, and they 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 had that in the original story, and then they phased it out pretty quickly. Okay. He kind of got with the times pretty quickly. Yep. Well, they even announce it in the uh, next issue blurb in the, that first story in Cessation number one, uh, calling it. Uh, let me let me look at the text here. I know we're jumping ahead to the end, but uh, and so begins the career of the gay ghost. This is the last panel, and so begins the career of the gay ghost, our 18th century hero, which drives me nuts because 1700 is part of the 17th century. <laughs> anyway, uh, a little bit of a. Uh, and it's in parentheses, a little bit at a loss in modern times at first, who is destined to outwit and outfight evildoers. So they admit that at first we're going to play him as a kind of a man out of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he soon gets with the program. That joke will get old pretty quickly. So, Unlike the gay queer jokes <laughs> that are going on at all times oh, God. in these issues. Ac- accidentally, one would imagine. Sure. But yeah. Um, but, but you know how the Golden Age comics can be, or even Silver Age comics, where uh, palling around between boys can sometimes seem homoerotic today, just the way it's it's written and done. Right. Yeah. So you got a lot of that as well. So you can sort of see characters have male characters have a crush on the gay ghost, or but it's just the way it's written. It's just that that kind of writing. And and yet I'm. I'm fascinated by this idea that we give these things a pass because they were of their time, but I really want to know if there was ever some deliberate subversive intent in some of these things. Like, did Gardner Fox really know what he was doing when he was making these jokes? Could that have been an issue of the time that he was either trying to draw attention to or trying to provoke and make fun of? Uh... I don't know when the words started to mean... Other things, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure when that that transition happened. Um, it, I mean, it seemed to have happened. M- maybe it's all postcode kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Originally, uh, they could get away with it. The words did or could mean that, but also, you know, it was like a double entendre. Right. But after the comics code, it was like um, you can't do that. You can't reference homosexuality. Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's it. And then they, they had to change his name, but um, I haven't done the research in the on the linguistics of it. I'm afraid. I just decided that by the end of this episode, I'm going to start the hashtag "Give Gay Ghost a Boyfriend." <laughs> but he's in love with a woman. <laughs> All throughout, that's his main she, motivation. No, she's his beard. <laughs> we're, we're okay. So the next part of the story, then. Yeah, we were killing Nazi spies, right? <laughs> and he kills two of them as Charles Collins. He takes over this body. But then, as you described, for the third and final one, he sheds the body, and he's just going to drag him away as the ghost form. Why did he need the body at all? I I think he probably, if we were to look at his stories, um, there's probably a pattern of, I can't be in a solid ghost all the time. Is this an issue of basically like the... The Everett, the 1700 form of him is sort of like his superhero costume identity, kind of like if we're borrowing kind of the tropes of a normal superhero adventure story, then then he, we have to see him at least in his 
costume yeah. in his well, full glory. Well, his first action, when he, when he becomes uh, Charles mm-hmm. the first time, he becomes Charles because he gets to Charles first, uh, the dying Charles, and Charles asks uh, him, uh, he wants his dying moments to be something Deborah would look up to because she's been so dismissive of him. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the Grim Ghost says, I'll make sure of it, that you look good in your death moment. And then he beats up on, uh, on the Nazi spies as Charles. So he's doing Charles a favor. But then later, he just takes on, you know, well, he's dead. I'll use his body now. <laughs> so, uh, because by then, he's become flesh and blood. And, you know, it, it, suddenly everything is possible, Deborah-wise. It, it's not necessarily all voiced, but that's, that's what's going on. Yeah, so, so the, the ghost, as a ghost, he can fly, he can let bullets go through him, he's got powers. Mm-hmm. And as, as Charles, he's mortal, except for the fact that he can, you know, astral project, I suppose. Right. So and there's a use for both identities. Yeah, I suppose. I, I just, I, I think in my mind, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put them in the sort of conventional boxes where you've got the superhero sort of identity and the regular sort of public persona. But the thing is he can do both sort of regardless. He, he can do, he can kind of do the same things, the same ghostly things, no matter how he's dressed. So I kind of feel like he doesn't need both visual styles, but uh, I don't know. That's, that's just me trying to make sense of this. Yeah, but when he's Charles, he's basically just he's using his his uh, fighting skills. Mm-hmm. I don't think he can fly, or uh, he can survive bullets apparently, or heal them. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's you, you see him just punching and mm-hmm. using maces and weapons from the Middle Ages or whatever, mm-hmm. or the Renaissance, I should mm-hmm. say. But I mean, there's this panel in the middle where he he kind of wakes up after Everett takes a hold of his body his hands are kind of like blazing with this pink fiery energy. It kind of looks like the power set of every, you know, X-Men character from the nineties or, or image character. They all had just energy hands, <laughs> but he yeah. doesn't, he doesn't use that. It feels, it seems like it's just a visual manifestation of him coming back to life. Sort of. Not really. Yeah. His ectoplasm mm. imbuing Charles with um, life. Yeah, a lot of this is, and you know, even after he beats up on the um, on the Nazis, he's in the background. Deborah doesn't see this, but there's like bubbles coming off him, and so this is Michael Bear being fancy and doing a lot of little detail work. But I'm not sure what's actually going on, right? It's just the whenever the ghost comes out of Charles, there's like these effects, but. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they always mean, and they're not always the same. Yeah, maybe again, this I really like the visual style, but it seems like there's always an X factor to Michael Bear's art that just keeps me from loving it. Like I like it, I think it's good, it's not great, and I think again, like this weird things like this, like these inconsistencies, just make it make me feel like I'm missing part of the story. Well, it's so busy. Yeah, you know, a lot of little details or uh, like. Um, one of my favorite bits is like page eight, top of page eight. We see 
it's it's in the um, astral realm. The an, the gigantic ancestor mm-hmm. talking to uh, the the grim ghost, and he's basically it looks there's like galaxies or mm-hmm. whatever. It looks like he's like the grim ghost is being sprayed with a hose, <laughs> like he's being hosed down by his ancestor. That's what it looks like. Yeah, and and here I'm being. <laughs> I, I, I'm 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 not using the whatever innuendo that I that I could come up with. Yeah, you're not speaking euphemistically. <laughs> uh, you know, it could. I mean, again, there's like these 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 weird somehow because the gay ghost is is in there, and we're all infantile in our <laughs> in our humor. Uh, you could make something of this of this stuff. If there's yep. a sophomore joke to be found, we'll find one. Sure. And there's one thing about the Grim Ghost, the idea that they changed his name to the Grim Ghost in this story. Mm-hmm. I was going to come to this point. Okay. Yeah. He keeps saying stuff about. <laughs> he describes uh, himself as a Grim Ghost, no less. You've than made twice. me a Grim Ghost indeed. Woo! And then later, when he's talking to the British officers after he drops off the last Nazi, he's like, "I am simply a ghost." And a very grim one. And I'm reading this just wondering, like, in the first appearance in Sensation Comics, did he say, I'm a ghost, a very gay one? I was like, really? Was that, did, did Roy just take that line and just word, like, word replace that one? Uh, he does tell the, um, the, the the military that he is simply a gay ghost. <laughs> he does say it, but uh, that's where his name comes from. But, but the question I, I asked myself on my blog when I covered the Grim Ghost last year or whenever is, was he, in those original appearances, was he gayer? Now, was he more grim or gay in the, in the original sense of the word? Okay. <laughs> was were, were the the stories happier or were they actually grim? You know, and no, they they were they were gay. They were about uh, pantsing uh, SS agents and uh, you know destroying destroying tanks. And but it was all there. There was a sense of joy to these stories. They did not feel dark. So put it in context. Contrast him against a more well-known ghostly character like the Spectre at this time. Whereas the Spectre was right. not cheerful or happy or lighthearted or other synonyms for gay at the time. He was the opposite of that. So The, the Spectre was a grim ghost. Okay. But the gay ghost uh, stories were, and I'm going to name another reference that you haven't necessarily read, but uh, his stories were a lot like those of the Ghost Patrol, who were basically uh, three friends who... Uh, like French legionnaires, but they weren't French. But anyways, in the French Legion, and they died in the first story and became ghosts, and then you know traipsed through Africa and Europe, pranking Hitler and his goons. And so there was the same you know a sense of humor to these stories. And the gay ghost was very much the Ghost Patrol. There's the same kind of well, we're having fun with these ideas, and we're uh, we're laughing at the. Um, we're laughing at the Germans uh, during wartime. This was what the stories were really about. Why couldn't we have gotten a secret origin of the Ghost Patrol? I don't know, but they were quite fun. Yeah, that sounds a lot more fun and interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, but here the the story as told uh, by Tom, Thomas and Bear mm-hmm. makes it grimmer, I guess. He has to say it a lot, but... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we can see, we can understand why he would become a grim ghost. After all, he was you know snatched from snatched from life 
too early and had to wait centuries for his sort of his beloved to come back, which is just like a genetic reincarnation, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So there, he has reasons to be grim, and he's inhabiting a corpse of you know a guy that was just shot, and and he wants to avenge people who have been killed. Sure, but he also keeps a painting of himself <laughs> in which he lived. Okay. So I, I'm, I'm not sure what the, this Dorian Gray kind of stuff is. <laughs> is uh, it's very much glossed over in the original stories, but it's like a receptacle for him, and perhaps he is linked to it. It's like the magical artifact that keeps him here. Possibly. Yeah. Golden Age stories go quickly and don't explain much, and this secret origin thing glosses over it even faster. Okay, so I kind of I, I feel like I want to come to a definite answer. Okay. Is this a good story or not? Is this a worthwhile character? I like the character. Okay. I think I think it's like a 1980s high pre- uh, <laughs> high concept premise for a TV show. <laughs> the the uh, the it's uh, Kate and Leopold. The kind okay. of you know it's you know you've got a character from the 1700s or the 1600s for most of his life, and uh, he's transplanted into the modern day where he has to inhabit a body and he doesn't really you know he makes all sorts of social mistakes. Sure. Right, and he also has that identity where he comes, you know, he goes to sleep, and his the ghost manifests and beats up Nazis or whatever else you'd have him do. I think that's an interesting hook. It's an interesting twist on the secret origin, uh, and then the I mean the secret identity idea. Uh, it's kind of creepy and bizarre and p- perhaps upsetting, mm-hmm. but um, I could see how this would they could make something interesting of this in like a Vertigo type uh, comic. In the yeah. same way that you know some of the Swamp Thing stories with Arcane and inhabiting Matt Cable's body, and you know they've did they've done those stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that kind of character. At the same time, it's swashbuckling. It's anyway. I, I think yeah. I think the the Grim Ghost is more or less handicapped by his original name. You know, he's become a joke whenever people use him. Uh, he's either tucked in the background or uh, as Morrison or Law and Order used him. You know, at the butt of a joke. But, yeah, I think it's an interesting... I don't think it's necessarily well told here. There's strange padding at different places. And we don't get to see him... You know, it's a, it's the origin. We don't see what his stories would be like. And the way his stories actually are, where uh, he's he's on missions for his ancestors, and that kind of setup isn't actually really in here. You can't tell from this what his stories would be like, especially since he moves to America. You're just going, what... what how, what what is he going to do in America? Right, and I, as I understand it, in some of his later uh, appearances, didn't he become a pilot in like the Royal Air Force? Oh, I, that could be. I I'm not there yet. Okay, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, somebody listening, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that happens later in his story, like according to like the Who's Who entry or or something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In America, he you know he had to fight uh, fifth columnists, and mm-hmm. I mean, Nazis are everywhere at this point. Uh, and maybe that's it because, like you said, there there's so many different. There's the element of you know we're fighting Nazi spies. That's great. There's the swashbuckling you know swordsman aspect. That is great. There is the sort of reincarnated ghost, uh, but sort of like endless gothic love story angle. That's all great. But all three of them put together in this story that 
I, I don't know. There's just some sort of disconnect where I don't feel like, yeah, I feel like after 18 or 19 pages, I still don't know really who this guy is or what to expect from him. Maybe that's just the fault of the first story. Maybe that's just the first adventure. There's too much or not enough. I don't know. But yeah, there's a lot. I mean, even the ancestors are acting like uh, like a Shazam figure. Or, mm-hmm. uh, there's there's a lot in there. But I think the original stories still are still quite fun. I mean, if he were really grim, uh, and those stories would be grim, I can see how to write those stories. I could find a way uh, myself. But I think the original stories were much more fun, and uh, you don't need to think about it so much. You know, you don't, you don't, it doesn't need to be reasonable if it's humorous. It can be enjoyed on that basis. You know, just uh, crazy, crazy stories where. Uh, where all, all this stuff can happen because there's a certain lunacy to it. If the ghost is going to be grim and serious, then suddenly the story's got to go more internal. It's got to be more about their strange relationship, perhaps, about him adapting to... And, and none of those stories were like that, really. Only this is like that. And since there's no real follow-up, who knows? All right. <laughs> I, I, I don't... I don't have much more about the story. I don't know how to feel. Like, I found myself at the end, like, thinking, like, you know, I wanted to know a little bit more about that character, Katie Reardon, from the beginning. Like, this woman who just kind of disappears and sort of instrumental in this guy's death and then vanishes. But we get, we spend a lot of time just looking at her, and, and Baird did a good job drawing her. She looks good. But yeah. you asked me to write the next story where they get to America and whatever. I would make her. A, a reincarnated villain mm-hmm. uh, who you know gets up in their in their face somehow. Uh, she would be you know she she is she has such presence in those in those early pages yeah. that she'd have to come back. She'd be, but then aren't we just doing Hawkman and Hawkwoman and Hawkgirl? I was going to say you're describing half the set. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so it's like a lot of different elements, but since then at least. We've seen those elements developed in with other characters, mm-hmm. and probably better. Any final thoughts on this story? Uh, no, that's. I think we've we've covered it more than uh, more than uh, <laughs> than probably it needed to be. Uh, and there isn't much recommended reading either. Yeah, I was thinking. Like, I know they made they reprinted Sensation Comics number one a couple of times. You can yeah. get like the Millennium edition that has it reprinted, so you can read his first story. Uh, and some of the other adventures were reprinted, like you said, in issues of World's Finest. Um, uh, yeah. Anything else besides that, like like so, where he's not just like a background cameo character? There really isn't. Um, I I seem to have read that some of the Wonder Woman archives. There's like a volume of Wonder Woman archives that maybe has. I I don't know. Probably not. Mm. I, I I've been searching for. I've done. I did research all afternoon to try to find where some of these stories might have been reprinted. And uh, aside from the Millennium Edition from 2000 and uh, the famous first edition from 1974, which both reprint the origin, the first story, there really isn't much call for um, for gay ghost or grim ghost stories. I suppose. Maybe too bad. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if that, if that's our loss or not. I, can't speak to the quality of those stories now. So, well, Cisco, thank you again for helping me cover this origin. Where else can our listeners hear from you? Well, if you're already on the Fire and Water pod, uh, podcast network to listen to Secret Origins, 
please take a gander at some of my podcasts, which are Lonely Hearts, the Romance Comics podcast, uh, Ohadmu or Not, where uh, I and the girls uh, cover Marvel Universe Deluxe, and uh, Invasion, uh, the First Strike Invasion crossover podcast as well. And other than that, ciscoid.blogspot.com, which is my blog where I post at least two articles a day, at least two articles a day, yeah, two articles a day. Well, let's leave it at two articles a day. Let's not say at least two. Yeah, don't, you know, don't two, two set the bar too high. At <laughs> least one. <laughs> Probably two. <laughs> Once a month, you'll update it. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on Secret Origins again. It's always great to hear from you. This was fun. So take care, buddy. Always a pleasure. On the last episode of Secret Origins, I covered issue 41 with Dr. G of Nerdology, and we talked about the origins of the Flash's rogues gallery. That episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Bill Bear, Buck at Highball2814, Captain Marvel at CaptMarvel75, Kalumnar, Cindy Womack, Codeman at BewareTheMatMan, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Dan at Dinosaur No One, David Gallagher, David Gutierrez, Dr. G Nerdologist, DS and RS, Earth 2 Chris, Film and Water Podcast, Gabriel M. Cox, Gen X-Wing Podcast, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Hugh Chambers, Jeremy Gunter, Jim Bal, John D. Knoll, Keith G. Baker, Martin Gray, Moby One, Odell Abner Dracula, Paul Hicks, Pointless Ephemera, Randy Caldwell, Richard Field, Rift, Rolled Spine Podcast, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Sin, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Over on Facebook, we got new likes and shares from Beware of Monsters Podcast, Chris Phelps, Christopher Luke, Christopher Willette, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, David Fiore, David Lung, Felipe Perez, Gotham Shioran, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Igor Glushkin, James Taylor, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jonathan Brown, Jonathan Hames, Kalel Kamandi, Keith G. Baker, Leslie Trigg III, Logan Drydale, Martin Gray, Matthew Cody, Michael Wagner, Mike Gillis, Neil Whitney, Nicholas Prom, P.I. Holly, The Pulped Pixel Podcast, Rob Lance, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Sean Merrick, Shag, Terry Wood, Tierra Comic, Tim Wallace, Turgay Madden, Valdis A. Kunzens, Van Z, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zeb Oswald. David Lung left a comment on the Facebook page saying, The Rogue's Origin issue is another I remember picking up in the back issue bin that I really enjoyed, in spite of, or maybe because of, the comic's goofiness. A sentient musical note saving the day by assaulting Gorilla Grodd, who's wearing polka dot boxers? Sign me up. I also got a message from David Ace Gutierrez who said, Mark Hamill recently said he thought he was offered the role of the trickster in the 90s Flash show as a goof. He was such a fan of the comic, he knew the trickster had shoes that enabled him to walk through the air. He said, oh, I get the gag, Hamill skywalking again. I love that idea. I kind of hope that's true. Anyway, 
Moving on to the website feedback, as always, you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com. I got a ton of wonderful comments after last episode. I'm not going to read every word on this segment, and as always, I encourage everyone to look at the comments thread on the Fire and Water page to follow along with those discussions. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl called me and Dr. G whippersnappers and then reminded us that the cover to Secret Origins 41 is an homage to Carmine Infantino's cover to Flash issue 174. Yeah, we completely dropped the ball on that. I knew it was an homage, but we never mentioned it on the episode. Mea culpa. Uh, the image was also homaged again for Countdown Special Issue 1. I posted all three images on the comments for last episode if you want to compare them. Martin also said, I'm pretty sure the trickster's pre-crisis status as a dedicated Flash villain occasionally lent out remained. He was just hanging around Blue Devil because, as noted, the Wally West Flashbook wasn't using the rogues much. Uh, On the show, we described Captain Boomerang as the sarcastic Australian guy, and Martin said, I thought you were talking about Paul Hicks. Shout out to Paul Hicks and Mike Garvey of the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom. They just put out an episode where they interviewed Paul Kupperberg. Great discussion, great episode, check that out. Uh, Finally, Martin said, or groaned maybe, Arr, Ryan, you prefer turbine to top? Blarr. What's evocative about a turbine? I don't mind a bit of anachronism. I'm sick of the Speed Force being linked to everybody. I don't remember saying I liked turbine more than the top, but I might have. I don't remember. Uh, The top is one of my favorite rogues, though. I know I mentioned that. And I also agree about the Speed Force being way too central to not only the Flash, but every one of his supporting characters and villains. I'm with you there, Martin. Uh, And I don't need turbine to be connected to it that way. I do think what I meant was that I liked how his powers in the comics affected Barry's. Uh, We got a comment from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary. I was going to comment on the cover homage, but Martin beat me to it. It all reeks of Strenko and before him Eisner, who used background elements, buildings, etc. to spell the title or credits. I like the style a lot. It feels very noir. Totally agree with that. Uh, Ange goes on, for me, I think the big thing is that there is no way that any of these guys should cause the Barry Allen Flash a problem. It's all gimmicks and feints against a man who can run near light speed. As a result, I end up reading many of the old issues like it as an elaborate LARP or extreme cops and robbers. I love the stories from the early Flash issues, love them. But, much like with Superman stories, I sometimes have to roll with the challenge. Jeff Nettleton said, The rogues are great blue-collar villains. They hang out at the local bar, complain about that jerk from work, being the Flash in this case, and they occasionally team up. It's no surprise that they were all represented in Challenge of the Super Friends, with Heatwave and Abracadabra appearing in proposal art. These guys even got their own costumer. How cool is that? The 90s Flash TV series was a bit dark and pat for me until they introduced the rogues. That's when it started to pick up, and when Mark Hamill appeared as the trickster, I was ecstatic. The current TV series picked up when we got Captain Cold and let him be the thief he always was. I always preferred the rogues to Batman's enemies. These guys are pros, not crazies with a mad on for Batman. They don't want to burn the world, they just want to be rich. I'm a bit disappointed that my favorite, Mirror Master, isn't here. 
Yeah, we were all... I mean, Mayor Master is a favorite of a lot of people, so we were disappointed that he wasn't in the story. Uh, Jeff also says, Leonard Snart has a third strike. According to Manhunter, he was also a Cubs fan. Talk about a loser. Well, that's a blow to Kyle Benning, who loves the Cubs. and Actually, they're my favorite baseball team, too. Uh, Joe X said, Flash 19, where Wally parties with the rogues, is one of the best issues of Bill Loeb's criminally underrated run. Uh, Joe also said, There were a few more circuses circi, in the DC universe. The Hill Brothers, where Dead Man started, and the one Kathy Kane bought after retiring as Batwoman. But I guess there's just Haley's these days. Uh, Joe goes on, The end of the story was silly and silver-agey and gloriously goofy in a way that no one would dare to do today. All it needed was caption boxes with hands coming out of it. Yes! I love that old effect. That would have been so great. Good call on that one, Joe. I got a message from Rift saying, I was talking with Paul Hicks the other... Another shout-out for Paul Hicks. I was talking with Paul Hicks the other day about how I missed the old one-issue storylines where villains like the Rogues were brilliant. Comics these days seem to be a feature-length film cut into five-minute segments released a month apart. It really points out the appeal and advantages of trade-waiting. Brilliant observation that almost all of the Rogues could be rolling in cash simply by using their abilities in a legitimate business model. Brilliant? Ah, gee, Rift. Uh, we got a message from Chris Phelps, a new listener, who said, Just found this podcast, and in the past week I've listened to about half of them. That's awesome, Chris. Thank you. Uh, he goes on to say, In the 80s, my parents were building a cabin. Every weekend on the way to the cabin, we would stop for groceries, and I was allowed to pick books off the spinner rack. Went from All-Star Squadron through Secret Origins in that era. Such great memories of reading these by Camp Lanterns. I wasn't a big Flash fan as a kid, so not a lot of memories of the rogues. I always thought they were the comic version of Ocean's Eleven with Captain Cold as Sinatra. Yeah, I was an odd child. Again, thanks for the trip down memory lane. This podcast is for me. Well, thank you very much, Chris, one more time. I hope you continue to enjoy the show as you make your way through the episodes. Another Chris, Chris Franklin, from the Supermates and Power Records podcast here on the Fire and Water Network, said, I first met the Rogues through Challenge of the Super Friends in the form of Captain Cold and Grodd. I first encountered Captain Boomerang in Batman 322, of all places. The rest I met either through the Flash comic or my beloved DC Digests, which reprinted the origins of Boomerang, Abracadabra, etc. I remember being surprised by Don Simpson's art on this one. I liked his cartoony take. It seemed to fit the slightly goofy take on the rogues from this period. I guess DC was kind of embarrassed by the characters for the better part of two decades, as they were rarely shown as any competent threat, and no less than Mark Wade killed them off, as Ryan pointed out. Wade said it was his one concession to 90s comic think, and he regrets it. Rob Kelly from Fire and Water, Film and Water, and the Bob Dylan and Water podcast said, While not my favorite issue, it is issues like this that make me so nostalgic for the series. Not having the Flash in the book at all is pretty uncommercial, but they went ahead and did it anyway. Maybe they knew the writing was on the wall and decided the hell with it. Let's just do what we want. I feel like if this was done now, they'd find a way to stick Flash and probably Batman in the book. Yeah, it would almost seem like negligence not to put Batman in the comic today, regardless of any creative logic or reasoning. D. 
Diablo Frank from the Marvel Superheroes podcast and DC Bloodlines podcast, among others, left a lengthy comment as usual. He wrote in about his first experience and his evaluations of all of the Flash's individual villains. I especially liked when he described Captain Boomerang as the Guy Gardner of supervillains. Perfect comparison. Frank also said, I appreciate how Promethean the rogues are, stealing the internalized powers of metahumans with their fabricated weapons. It's cool how they're, you know, relative to comics, practical and sociable, all going to the same tailor who specializes in their form of costume play. Over the years, I've gotten sick of pedantic fans mocking the concept of the gimmick villains by pointing out that they would be happier and wealthier by simply patenting their fantastic inventions instead of robbing banks for thousands of dollars with devices worth millions. In the real world, sure, but so little about the comic book adventures we enjoy reflect our actual reality, and that's kind of the point. So, I offer the Richards Principle as a catch-all no-prize. The premise is simple that most of the inventions of supervillains already exist in a world filled with polymath supergeniuses and alien technology, and in fact, this circumstance has robbed the comics world of most opportunities for entrepreneurial invention. All this super science is already owned by corporations or governments who use it at their pleasure, but either refuse or are prohibited from supplying these advancements to the common man. However, the option exists for criminals to steal or reverse-engineer these devices using materials that are not available in our world, but are attainable in theirs. A freeze gun could be the equivalent to a truck bomb with regards to difficulty in constructing, which explains why so many supervillains have them, but they're still not commonly held by citizens and are likely similarly very illegal. It even explains the continued driving existence of traveling circuses in comics as an equivalent to gun shows, decentralized, underregulated mobile opportunities to observe and retain advanced weaponry. Interesting take. I, I like that explanation, Frank. Let's go with that. He goes on to say, I had very low expectations for this issue, beginning with a green Mignola offering a pale recreation of Infantino on the cover, which contributed to my apprehension about cracking it. I prefer early Paris Cullens, but his later exaggerations were an asset to Michigan and Cohn's surprisingly amusing introductory sequence. I also did not recognize the usually just serviceable Grant Meum, so kudos to Aiken and Garvey for their appealing ink contributions. I like Howard Simpson from this period anyway, but Anthony Van Bruggen gives his line an uncommon delicacy. Ian Carr is unfamiliar to me. Trevor Von Eden's art again looks like quick sketches for a letters page or fanzine, lacking even a semblance of depth. The only character he puts effort into seems to be the human grod, and I think that was more of an experiment employing Miller's style from Ronan. I could never take Don Simpson seriously, but man is he on point with Gorilla Grodd. I love the villain dialogue balloons, and I can't believe this mix of origins and bridging story worked together so well. This is like a Lost Blue Devil trickster spotlight issue by that book's creative team, and one of my favorite stories of this run. After that, Frank went on for another three or four paragraphs, but I'm going to cut him off here after he said something really nice. Why keep reading and risk ruining the moment? Uh, and anyway, we got a comment from the irredeemable shag that was nearly as long, 
Skipping all of the boring or stupid parts, Shag said, I haven't read this Secret Origins issue in years, so I didn't remember the first thing about it. However, like Dr. G, from your descriptions, I was pretty sure the bald mystery guy would turn out to be Abracadabra. Instead, we get Gorilla Grodd trapped in a human form. Oh joy. Everyone loves their favorite gorilla character as a human... Regarding the New 52 and the internalization of the rogue's powers, you are half right. It actually works better than you might expect. All the rogues still had their previous origins. The internalization of the rogue's powers happened years after they became crooks. There is a benefit to the internalization of the powers. As Ainge said above, there is no way these rogues with gadgets should be any trouble for the Flash. Flash can just grab the gadgets in the blink of an eye. However, by internalizing the powers, that makes them more challenging. So while I love the rogue gimmick weapons, I'm also okay with the internalization that Manipul and Buccioletto introduced. That really was an amazing Flash run by Manipul and Buccioletto, some of the best Flash comics in years. Everyone should read them. Again, I like the guns better than the internalized powers, but you do make a good point, Shag, and that was a really stellar run. It was a very fun comics to read during the Manipul Buccioletto run. So pick those up if you haven't read them. Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks and 90s Comics Retrial said, I'm right there with you, Ryan, on the dynamic of career criminals versus the over-the-top world dominators that most comic villains are. You mentioned Heat, and I'd also cite the first film in the Transporter franchise, where Frank, the titular getaway driver, has a great relationship with a local detective where the cop knows what Frank used to do, and anytime something happens, he shows up and goes, Frank, are you working again? I just love the idea that career cops and career criminals, not actively hating each other, but rather having jobs that clash by their nature, like a prosecutor and a defense attorney. Jimmy McGlinchey said, All the commentary on the internalization of the rogue's powers reminds me of the DC Robot Chicken special, where Mr. Freeze is berating how the likes of Captain Cold and Icicle have the exact same powers, moaning that he spent years in college studying the subject, while these college dropouts managed to get some of the same powers with little difficulty. Oh, I completely forgot about Chill Blaine. You and America, buddy. It took me six years of research to build my freeze ray. How do high school dropouts keep making them? Are they as easy to build as ham radios and I'm just an asshole? I love that bit from that episode. Good call, Jimmy. Uh, he goes on and says... When Gamby was mentioned in the episode, my mind flashed to the neutral ground story from the further adventures of Batman, and lo and behold, it was brought up by you and Dr. G within two minutes. There were some great stories in those books. There was an excellent child kidnapping story in the Penguin and Catwoman volume, if I recall correctly, and it was a pity they don't do those type of anthology pro stories as you could get some really great stories. They did a similar anthology with Game and Sandman, which also has some excellent stories. Yeah, I'm going to reread those prose Batman stories when I get a free minute. So, I guess like in 30 years. Uh, we also got a comment from Sean Walsh who said, Kind of hate to admit it, but I never knew this was a Mike Mignola cover before you pointed it out. It was such a good take on the original Flash cover that I'm ashamed I never bothered to look at who drew it. I like the presentation of how they all tell their origins, though I wish the art, for the most part, had been better, instead of the standard 80s DC fill-in quality. Cohen's did well, but sadly was out of the way for the bulk of the comic. Like I said in the episode, I liked some of the artists' work better than others. Paris Collins did do a great job, and I wish he had drawn some of the actual rogues in their full presence, though. 
Uh, and the final comment came from Mark Baker Wright, who said, I'm late getting to this, but I'm astonished that none of us comic nerds have yet pointed out the glaring error in your review of the trickster. The character's name is not Jesse James, as was asserted frequently. It is James Jesse. Yes, I'm a pedantic jerk, but we're comic nerds. We're supposed to be pedantic jerks. Yeah, uh, throughout the last episode, Dr. G called the trickster Jesse James. In fairness to him, he had a pretty nasty head cold when we recorded that episode, so that might explain the confusion. And I didn't even hear it or realize it when we were talking. The words just made sense in my head. It was only when I went back to edit the podcast that I realized it. But, you know, oh well, even Stan Lee called his characters by the wrong name from time to time. And that is going to be all for this episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. Once again, I want to thank my guests, Siskoid and the Irredeemable Shag, for their appearance on this episode. Thank you, everyone who wrote into the Fire and Water website or promoted the show on social media. Your feedback is wonderful. Please keep it up. Next time, the origin of Hawk and Dove. And some other losers, probably. Until then... Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. So she took her love for to gaze a while upon the fields of Bali. In his arms she fell as her hair came down among the fields of gold. Will you stay with me? Will you be my love among the fields of Bali? We'll forget the sun in his jealous sky as we lie in fields of Mr. DiNapoli. He specialized in all American comics from the 40s. Early Wonder Woman, Golden Age Green Lantern, Gay Ghost. Okay, gay Ghost? As in cheerful. Some of these are worth upwards of $10,000. We think whoever killed Mr. DiNapoli stole those. We'd like to know if anyone brings them in. Well, they're not unique. I got a Green Lantern number six on auction right now. Now, if you get more than one of those. Sure. Can I keep this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so. funny. I had an inquiry last week. Somebody wanted to know the value of Sensation Mystery Number One and the All American 20 and the All Flash Quarterlies. Those are on the list. I think that's a coincidence. You got the name of the guy who inquired. I just heard about David. It's hard to believe. You knew Mr. DiNapoli? Yes. Socially, we played tennis. You also had an interest in his business. Fiber optics? No. His comic book collection. You wanted to know how much it was worth. Uh, You inquired a few days before he was killed for them. You think I killed David for his comic books?
Why were you asking about them? Because they were partly mine. I invested with David. David convinced me that comic books were a growth area. The first Superman just sold for a million dollars. The prices are going nuts. So you were making money. Everything was fine? No, David said the big-name books were overvalued and the obscure ones had all the upside, so we bought Dr. Midnight, Johnny Thunder. You ever hear of the gay ghost? Yeah, he was cheerful. Yeah, well, he wasn't worth anything. David thought he might command a premium because of his name, but he was wrong about all of them. I had called that dealer to see if I had any of my investment left. The dealer told us they were worth a bundle. I paid a bundle. They were supposed to go up. They didn't. I lost my shirt. Thanks to Mr. DiNapoli. You mind telling us where you were last night? 